0: I'm Chris Till, and this is the Digital Health Digital Capitalism Podcast. So, welcome to this first Digital Health Digital Co- Capitalism Podcast, and actually this is my first ever podcast, so please excuse my amateurism with this. Uh, what I intend this series to be is uh, a selection of discussions with people who I think have done interesting work, and have interesting things to say about digital health and digital capitalism. So, what I mean by these things is, first of all, digital health. Um, I think about how our experience, practice and understanding of health has been affected by digital technologies, which means lots of different things really, but perhaps Fitbits or Jawbones, Apple Watches, that kind of thing or the use of more medical devices, such as maybe digital insulin trackers or devices which are used to detect when people fall over in their home and then signals their family or their carers. What we also mean the impact of digital data and big data on how health is uh, managed uh, through the NHS or other health services. I think these kinds of developments are having a bigger impact, although it's not always clear what this impact is and I think many of the people I'll be speaking to have some really fascinating insights into the specifics of what is happening in digital health and they also offer some broader context and analysis of what these developments might mean. But I'll be discussing in detail uh, digital health in relation to digital capitalism or the changes in how money is made, profits are generated work is conducted uh, with digital technologies and digital data, it seems to me that for all the many potential positives that may be with the use of digital health um, devices, technologies, data, they are almost always simultaneously opening up new ways of making money. Uh, This doesn't necessarily mean that digital developments shouldn't take place or that we should and um, we should necessarily avoid them, but we should also be cautious of their impacts. You'll be able to see the full list of my podcasts on my blog, which you can find at this is not a dot blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Chris H. till and you should also be able to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts. In this first episode I'm speaking to Nick Fox who's been a critical voice in the sociology of health and illness for a long time and has uh, done lots of work around health and technologies of various kinds. Uh, He's I think one of the earliest uh, health sociologists to Uh, look at the impacts of of the internet uh, and more recently he's been looking at um, some kinds of digital technologies um, that I've also taken an interest in. Okay so um, now I'm talking to uh, Nick Fox who is Honorary Professor of Sociology at the University of Sheffield Um, and he'll be familiar to lots of people uh, who've read Um, work in sociology of the body and sociology of health um, and broadly sociology uh, over the last um, over the last few years having written many many um, influential books and articles. So I'm going to talk to Nick today about um, in particular about some of his recent work uh, which has been focusing on personal health technologies but I think we'll touch on um, a lot of his kind of theoretical uh, work and theoretical influences um, as well and how they how they feed into and, and fit with and um, influences um, uh, his work in this area, and in uh, his uh, empirical work is done as well. Uh, so, hello, Nick.
1: Hi, Chris.
0: Hi. Thanks for um, thanks for coming to speak to me. Um, what I'd first like to ask you about is um, if you could tell me a bit about some of this recent work around um, I think what what you uh, define as personal health technologies. Uh, could you tell me a bit about how you define these technologies, what's included in that, uh, maybe kind of what's not, and what you think is interesting about them broadly?
1: Well, I came up with the, the title Personal Health Technologies, because originally when I was writing a paper, then I was talking about personal medical devices, and a reviewer said that some of these were not actually medical at all, and so as a consequence of that, then I decided that Some alternative term might be the case. I suppose what we mean by these personal health technologies are all those things which are close to body. They're either worn or potentially they're even implanted into the body. Some of these are technologies which are put there specifically by health professionals. So, for example, any kind of monitor of blood pressure, for example. Uh, Some of the more remarkable ones are the implantable technologies such as cardioverters, which can potentially defibrillate or even give a minor uh, electric shock if the heart goes into a bad rhythm. And then on the other hand, you've got the technologies such as the Fitbits and Apple watches and such like, which are being used now by people as consumers, to self-monitor their fitness and other body parameters. The reason that I became interested in these was, I suppose, just a a follow-on from a long-term interest in technologies of all sorts. Um, I started my academic career with my PhD, which was on surgery, and a lot of That was actually about looking at some of the technologies and the the interactions between the technology, for example, anaesthesia or some of the the medical devices, the surgical devices which are used with the surgeons and the anaesthetists and the nursing staff and, of course, the patients. And technology plays quite a big part in that and the interactions that go on. In fact, I've been thinking I should actually go back and reanalyze some of those data with the uh, the more current methodology and ontology that I'm using now. But after after that, then I became interested when the internet first got going, at how the internet could be used to support health education uh, on medical education in particular. And then that led on to a project around the interaction between the internet and pharmaceutical technologies and... That was absolutely fascinating, and in many senses, has led up to the current interest in these personal health technologies.
0: That's really interesting. And so, um, uh, before we move on to something else, I just wonder if you could mention a little bit about so what, what in what particular has changed about your thinking. So you said uh, if you went back to your um, so your PhD research now, you might look at it a bit differently. Um, could you say anything about in, in particular about what you might look at differently now as to when uh, what you did then and. It, is that to do with the, the theoretical sort of tools available to you now that you, maybe you weren't aware of or that, that hadn't been developed at that stage?
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, I started off as a sociologist with a fairly straightforward interactionist perspective mm. and I was really focusing in on the human agents and the technologies were just incidental to this really and they were, they were tools which were being used, and from a sociological point of view, they weren't really that interesting. And I think this was just about the time that SCS was getting going, science and technology studies. And I think now the big difference is, as I want to accord much more, I'll call it for now, agency, though that's not a great word, and I might, might offer you an alternative in due course, but the agency of things, and I'm very interested in the capacities that produce, that are produced in people as a consequence of their interactions with things, with technology. So I suppose what I'm, I'm focusing on now is a very strictly materialist perspective, and that's the difference. And so. What I would want to do now is actually look much more at the effects that spaces and technologies actually have upon what can be done in surgical spaces.
0: So it's kind of the, those those human actors now are, are much more uh, integrated or, or kind of situated within within the spaces and and the and the, and the things uh, around them.
1: I think that probably the key word here now that's coming into my vocabulary more and more is environment or mm. ecology mm. and actually under, trying to look at situations as a whole and understand that there are in these situations there are humans and then there are non-human things as well. And it's what's going on between those and also between some abstractions, uh, concepts which lead us to think about the world in particular ways, Uh, even our memories and Mm. our aspirations can actually be things within what I would call an assemblage. And so it's that which is important, it's actually looking at that ecology of humans interacting with, with all kinds of other things, some of which are animate and some of which are inanimate.
0: Okay, that's great. You've written about, um, in the last um, several years really, is the work of uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, um, who you've, um, you've drawn on quite extensively. And I, mean, I certainly see you as one of the, kind of the key interpreters of their work, certainly for me, in terms of looking at, at, at sociology of health and sociology of the body. Um, what is it that you find particularly fruitful or useful about, about their work in this context?
1: It is this materialist focus. It's the focus moving away from trying to understand the essences of things, whether that's a human or an object, and actually looking at what they can do in particular contexts. And that really, if you you like, is the nub of what Deleuze and Guattari are offering us as an ontology. It's to say, let's stop asking what something is and ask, something, ask instead, what can it do? And really, that's all one needs to understand about that. And I think that I'm now drawing upon a whole range of materialist scholars. Deleuze and Guattari, Deleuze and Guattari offer probably the most developed ontology, but I think that some of the theorists who have been trying to develop a a social ontology. For example, Manuel de Landa, and also the work of Bruno Latour have been more and more influential. And so it's really drawing together these different materialist scholars and provide together provide some kind of ontology, which helps us to start to understand the social. But I'd, I'd add one thing to that, and that is that especially in the case of Deleuze and Guitari they are not sociologists Mm. and quite often people find their work quite difficult but it's not surprising because Deleuze was probably one of the leading philosophers of the 20th century and he he was within that particular tradition and what we really need now to do is to start to engage with the work of philosophers but to translate it most specifically into a workable sociology. And a sociology that is not just about social theory, but is also about empirical collection of data, analysing data, and hopefully as a consequence of that, being able to recommend some changes that can make the world a better place. So that's what I'm interested in. And so these theorists are just a means to the end. And I've been using some of their concepts uh, as Deleuze and Guattari say to think differently about the world.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. And that is what lots of people struggle with. And I think lots of people are very taken with some of the, the, the kind of the, the grand ideas or all, all, all that kind of that thinking differently which they get from people such as, and in particular, Deleuze and Guattari, but do struggle to know what to do with it. And I think that um, your book, uh, The Body, is particularly Particularly useful for that um, in that enterprise for me. Is there anything, any kind of anything, any small thing that you could suggest as kind of almost a, a piece of advice to someone who is trying to do that in their own work? So you talked about it as in mean, this way of kind of thinking differently. Um, what would that mean in, in practical terms by using their work?
1: Well, I'll start by being a bit cheeky and say that actually, if people want to do this, they should buy. The new book, which is just out in October 2016, which is actually called Sociology and the New Materialism. And that is the effort of myself and Pan Aldred to put together a, sol- a sociological perspective on a materialist sociology, that is, a, a sociological perspective on the work of the new materialists. As I say, the concepts are actually relatively straightforward, and there's probably a very small toolkit of concepts that I use. I could, I could probably summarise the approach that I've developed in terms of three terms. Firstly, assemblage. Secondly, affect. And thirdly, territorialization. And I could very quickly define each of these. I suppose starting with the assemblage, the focus of that concept. Is that we look not at individual humans or individual things but we start to understand what happens when they interact and the assemblage becomes the unit of analysis rather than starting as sociology traditionally does by looking at an individual and what they do or a group of human beings and their interactions to actually ask well in a context when various human and non-human things come together when they assemble together then what capacities are produced and also asking the question of who benefits as a consequence what is the micropolitics politics of that. The second of those concepts of affect I mentioned earlier that I'm slightly uncomfortable with the word agency which of course is a very well worn sociological term. Deleuze and Guattari use a very simple definition of affect because that's a term which has been used in many different contexts and it most certainly does not mean what the psychologists mean when they talk about affect which effectively is some kind of emotional response. Affect for Deleuze and Guattari simply means a capacity to affect or be a fact affected by and that allows us to start to understand the ways in which humans and non-humans and even ideas can interact with other things and what they affect and how they are how they are affected so that substitutes for the idea of agency in traditional sociology the third term which is a Of the third term of territorialization is actually a term that I feel less and less comfortable with because it's such a piece of jargon. Mm -hmm. And what Deleuze Mutari meant by territorialization was trying to understand exactly what capacities are allowed as a consequence of of a particular assemblage, what what a human or a non-human can actually do, and territorialisation is effectively talking about enabling or disabling some of those capacities. Well, I now prefer the term specification in terms of territorialisation because it's actually a a word that we're probably, in English at least, more comfortable with than territorialisation. So specification is, is pretty clear what that means. It actually means that in, within an assemblage, certain, capaci- certain capacities are specified. And then the opposite, the term that Deleuze and Guattari called a de uh, I talk about a generalisation instead. And what that's about is that within an assemblage, that capacities actually are opened up, they're broadened, they're generalised in other words. So I think that those three terms, assemblage, affect and territorialization or specification slash generalisation, actually are a really useful little toolkit which actually inform that materialist ontology and it, it has certain other consequences which I can go into uh, in a moment if you wish.
0: Great. That's extremely, uh, extremely useful, extremely helpful, and um, yeah, definitely be um, have a look at the the new book as well. To go, to go, take this back a little bit to um, more towards the theme of the um, of my podcast series in general, and we'll, we will return, I think, to Deleuze and Guattari and some of those other thinkers, uh, but. Are there any particularly important ways in which you think these um, technologies you're interested in, as personal health technologies, or uh, what we can think about as more broadly in terms of digital technologies, or maybe have they changed how we think or how we act or um, how we kind of feel about uh, health in recent years, whether that's in terms of how health is managed, how illness is treated, or or just broadly how we understand health and illness? What kind of um, influence do you think that they've had, if any?
1: I suppose that the, the recent development of digital technologies is inevitably going to have an effect upon health and how it's treated and how illness is treated. And I suppose that we could differentiate two main effects. One is in terms of efficiency and the other is in terms of effectiveness. and. It's very clear that there are certain digital technologies that allow the management of health and illness in a more efficient way and the obvious example of that is telemedicine. If you are a person who is living in a rural or remote location in Australia or the United States or Canada then it's extremely inefficient to fly in a health professional by plane to your location if you feel a twinge that could possibly be a heart attack. It actually makes a lot more sense and it's a lot cheaper, in other words, it's more efficient to provide some kind of monitoring which would enable some judgments to be made at a distance. And telemedicine is clearly very useful for that. And I think that that's one of the things that we can see is going to develop over time. I suppose the, the second aspect of it is effectiveness. Are digital technologies actually going to make us more effective in supporting and promoting health and in reducing the effects of illness and disease? And I think that we can see that the Internet of Things is going to do that, partly in terms of the, the technologies which I mentioned a moment ago, such as monitors implantable devices and such like but also i mean i think we can start, start to see a future and it may be a year away or 10 years away or 100 years away i don't know but it's going to happen where we're going to actually find that these technologies are going to be linked to things that can actually interact with the world and with bodies and we're all, already seeing the development of robot surgery which allows very, very meticulous and detailed surgical work to be undertaken. And I can see that linking that into specific digital technology, which allows allows uh, communication, opens up a whole potential around nanotechnology. We can actually imagine that these robots will actually become micro robots in the future, and they will they will go into human body is a bit like The Incredible Journey, and they will travel around inside the body and blood vessels into the brain or into organs, and then you might have a, a surgeon at the other end of the connection who is actually deciding what those little nanites, those, those micro-robots are actually going to do. So I think that these things are going to happen. I'm less convinced that the Fitbit is going to be the thing that, that changes the world. I think that people are extremely interested in monitoring their their own health, Uh, but I don't see that necessarily as being a huge change because actually I don't see that a lot of individual behaviour is the issue at the moment. I think that actually we have to look beyond individual behaviour to understand much more about the way that health and illness are mediated by social processes and by capitalism and by neoliberalism in order to really understand what's going on. So I'm, I'm not so convinced by that particular brand of personal health technology having a huge impact.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think that that, that distinction you're making is really useful between, I suppose we can see perhaps the, the Fitbits and the Apple Watches and that kind of thing as being more on the, the consumer side uh, with, um, and selling a certain uh, kind of, as you say for very kind of often individualised notion of personal responsibility and this kind of thing, as opposed to uh, the other things that you're, that you're discussing with a, maybe a more complex relation. Uh, but I think something that perhaps does bring both of them together in different contexts is, and to, to link to the other major theme of, of, of capitalism uh, that we're talking about, is, is the data. Uh, and of course there's, um, in, in both of those cases, in, in, in most cases within within um, health in general and with, with these technologies they're producing lots of data and there's questions over who owns that or who manages it perhaps even more significantly and we've seen in, in cases in, in recent times of both those kind of personalised data being kind of sold or traded um, perhaps more worryingly or, or perhaps worryingly um, the kind of uh, the more medical side of that data is being being managed or accessed by commercial enterprises, such as uh, there was the case of one of the London boroughs i think um allowed Google access to um a lot of um uh, i think around a million or a million and a half people's NHS data so they could help to help them to develop um, some kind of app. Do you see any particular um is there any particular dangers or concerns that you have around that? with those companies like Google being perhaps the, the best placed or, or with the, the best resources to do some of that management work. Um, are there any particular concerns you have there?
1: I have huge concerns about this. I think there's two levels to this. Um, the first, which I'll, I'll just say very briefly but then come back to, is about the kinds of issues about the commercialisation of health data uh, which, which you very co- cogently identified a moment ago. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. But I think the other issue, of course, is that from a sociological perspective, then we are quite quite wary of any notion that data can speak for itself, that there is actually something called data at all. I mean, data is a Latin word that means those things that are given. But actually, what sociologists have been arguing for probably a century now is that these things aren't given. They actually only really come to have any meaning when we interpret them through particular frameworks. And we can look back over the last hundred years of many of the abominations which have taken place politically as a consequence of data being used as if it somehow does speak just to one truth, and we understand very much that that's not the case. So I'm very concerned at that level that what we have now with the move to so-called big data is the assumption that somehow the information is the same as knowledge, or even the same as wisdom, and it's not. And I think what we have to, as sociologists, be saying, is that we have to start to question some of these assumptions which come from some of the more quantitative sciences, such as economics, that actually we can just reduce everything to numbers and actually that can explain everything. So, so that's, a, that's an, a major concern with, with the whole use of big data. But then going on to thinking about the commercialisation of this health data. I think we have to really start to ask some questions about what's going on in the political and the economic at the moment. Well, various people have talked about digital capitalism that we are now in an era where technology has actually turned another corner in the way that capitalism works and a number of writers have suggested that we are now in the era of digital capitalism. And that what has happened is that technology has provided a new twist to the way in which capitalism is actually offered and delivered. And I think what's very interesting about that is that what we're seeing is yet another turn in the effort to increase profit. And What's been argued is that digital capitalism can be typified by a number of different aspects. Actually, they can be summarised in four terms. Firstly, that it provides an ability to deliver services with very narrow margins of profit, perhaps as little as 5%, whereas traditionally a company might be looking for a profit margin of maybe 20-25%. It allows a very high volume of work to be undertaken as a consequence of the use of technology. So effectively, what it permits us to do is to really increase massively the amount of provision of service or of a product. The third element is that it provides very precarious employment as a consequence of this narrowing of margins and the high volume of work, and the fact that a lot of the work which is left for humans to do once the technology is finished is actually quite manual. It's like Amazon employing thousands of people to put items into boxes. The technology does all the difficult work of actually identifying what should go to whom, but then you actually have to have people, human beings at the moment at least, If I'm sure soon they'll be replaced by robots, but actually to do the packing and making sure it actually gets there. And actually that leads to the fourth aspect of digital capitalism, as it's been described, which is increasing inequity between the income of the people who develop companies and those who work in them. And I think that there's a further aspect to this, which is that we can see that a lot of what is going on at the moment with with digital capitalist companies, such as Airbnb, Uber, Trivago, the, the super, 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 super travel agent, uh, broker, um, Amazon, as I mentioned a moment ago, even eBay, is that. None of these companies actually produce anything at all. What they produce is a means to link providers to consumers. And take the example of Uber, the taxi firm. Effectively, what that does is it enables people to undercut, for example, in London, the black cabs, by providing a means for consumers to directly interact with providers, those people who are sitting around in their taxi cabs waiting for someone in the area to actually want to to get a ride. And we can see as a consequence of that, that many of these people who are working for Uber are earning pitifully small amounts of money because they're actually not making that many trips during a shift. And there's an interesting example, taking us back to health, of that, which um, I came across quite recently, which is the visa app. And Vida is, that's V-I-D-A, is one of those applications which are now available to provide what it calls itself a virtual care app. And it's usually accessed via things like Fitbit or the Apple Watch. And what this effectively does is it shares the personal data of people who are using Fitbit or whatever to track. Their running or their steps or whatever it is, and then actually offers to put them in contact with online health and fitness coaches, who then can interact with the consumers in real time and provide coaching to these people. Now that's actually fascinating because what exactly that's exactly the same model as Uber is, which is effectively not not providing anything other than a portal. Whereby consumers and providers can be put together, and we have all the same aspects of this because potentially what you're going to find is that the fitness coach is going to have to charge less because they're in, they're now going to be in global competition with each other rather than just in the competition with the two other people in their town, and they're probably going to have to work for less. Their employment is going to become more precarious, and as a consequence we can see that there will also be the other features of digital capitalism, the narrowing of margins, the profitability and uh, for, the, for the company Vida, and also the high volume of business. So it's happening, and what we can see here is the emergence of a new model of capitalism. It's not anything which is in itself significant, because capitalism has always sought to reduce its, um, its overheads and to maximise its, its, the amount of money as it takes. Um, and we can see that just in the same way that uh, weavers and knitters sitting in their upstairs rooms in cottages in the highlands and islands of Scotland were replaced by the Lancashire mill factories, in the early 19th century, then now what we can see is that digital technologies are actually going to start to intervene. And I think we're going to just see more of that.
0: Absolutely. And I think the way you have conceptualise that is extremely useful, and, and uh, I basically agree. In it. And uh, that's an extremely good example, the the VEDA, of, of how this applies. And um, I think, for me, that's one of the really interesting things about the digital in particular, is also that it, it can... Um, it can break down and kind of fragment those kinds of tasks, which perhaps wasn't quite possible before in the same way that the factory could um, kind of do uh, that kind of de-skilling or kind of individualizing or, or fragmenting process of uh, manual labor. Uh, this can be done through, through the digital and uh, with cases like uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, um, where they uh, effectively break down cognitive tasks into tiny, tiny fragments, which then are, are kind of farmed out for very low cost. It seems like something very similar there. And so the, the getting at that aspect is really useful. You mentioned, uh, just to go back slightly, um, about the management of the data, the amount of data that's being produced, this kind of thing, and the dangers of assuming that that data is simply um, simply fact or simply truth. Can you see any particularly... Particular opportunities um, for sociologists in that kind of realm. Of course, there are lots of uh, there are lots of dangers. Um, What do you see as being kind of the role of sociologists in the face of all this supposedly big data? Is it to kind of question it, to work with it, to work with people who work with it, or how would you see that?
1: I think that we can certainly raise doubts and uh, unease about this, but I think that probably more importantly what we need to do is to start to engage with the whole understanding of the nature of data. Mm. And rather than earlier on, I I offered a effectively post-positivist analysis of this, and that's well-worn, and in some senses, I think it's not necessarily the argument which is going to be the most significant in actually posing that challenge to big data because big data is supported by massive commercial interest. But I think what we can do is we can actually start to bring to, get, bring to bear some ontological concerns about data and we can start to develop alternative ways of understanding the interactions between data and humans and money. And I suppose that this goes to the heart, going back to the materialist perspective that I offered earlier, that one of the things we need to do is actually to start to try to make more sense of our ontology of things. And I suppose that the traditional way that science and technology studies has looked at technologies is as objects with particular capacities that are built into them. They have attributes. And it may be, some people have talked about, a very deterministic model where these attributes have been intentionally built into a piece of technology so that it will do something and that is the thing which will, it will achieve its objective. So for example, uh, we could say that a, um, an egg timer has been developed in order to provide us with a, a, a very good measure of how long it takes to time an egg. Another way to think about this is to say that it's not determining of human behaviour, but that these technologies have been developed by humans in order to achieve particular objectives. Well, I want to think about this in a, a third way, and that is to suggest that what we have to understand is always that technologies exist within particular contexts, and that it's only within those contexts that we can start to understand them. And so, thinking about going back to your question about data, if we actually think about the technologies which are producing this data rather than the data itself, that's the key, I think, to this. And we have to actually ask some questions about that and also about why things are the way they are. And it seems to me that what we have to understand is that data is being generated within the context of capitalism. And there's there's no... way to sugarcoat that, that is basically what it is, that we have to understand that data is being generated for commercial objectives and and that's just, it it may, or alternatively, that data which hasn't been produced for commercial objectives in the first place is now being used by commercial interests and that effectively comes to the same thing. That what we have to understand now is that we have a situation where technologies which are producing data or those and, and and those technologies which have been developed for other reasons but are, are generating data along the way are now operating within this capitalist milieu. Now, what we can start to do is we can unpack that assemblage, that capitalist assemblage, which involves technology, it involves humans, it involves particular interests, it involves companies, involves money and it involves economics and what we can start to do is to actually unpack that and to start to understand why it is that these technologies are being used in this particular way. And in my view, the exciting thing about that is that it also allows us to move beyond that. Once we actually understand the micro-politics of the interactions between humans, data, technologies and money, we can also say, well, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing determining in a technology, there is nothing determining in the data that's produced by a technology. We can actually start to use these technologies in different ways because actually there is no technology. What there is, is there is an assemblage. And in particular assemblages, the thing that we, we call a technology actually may be rather different because it's been given different capacities. And so that's the exciting thing. And so I think that's the, that's the what sociologists need, now could start to be thinking about is actually trying to understand the micropolitics of data production and then asking how could that be different?
0: That's fantastic and especially because that, that brings me on to my last my last question uh, really neatly as well which is about um, something that I found particularly fascinating in your recent work and um, I think it's particularly uh, in, in an article you wrote um, I think it's in the journal Health in which you kind of pick apart some um, personal health technologies and go through this process of, uh, sort of reverse engineering them to see exactly how certain kinds of uh, affordances or, or whatever have been built into them and I find this really interesting but what I find particularly exciting is the the kind of the the other process that you go through of looking into how it might be possible to forward engineer uh, devices or technologies particularly for the purpose of resistance uh, and of re- resisting some of the, exactly some of the kind of problems that we've that we've discussed in, uh, in in this interview so I wonder if you could tell me just just to finish on a bit about how you see that process what, what uh, how that might be possible and um, what the role of sociologists might be in that. And so it can end on quite a positive note as well, kind of positive for the future. So this process of forward engineering technologies, uh, could you explain a bit about that?
1: Well, we can engineer technologies to do pretty much what we want them to do. And just as commercial interests and industrial interests and capitalist interests have engineered technologies to do certain things within particular situations or assemblages or events, or whatever you want to call them, then, as you say, we can also, we can re-engineer them. We can forward engineer technologies to do certain things. And if we have a radical or critical agenda, then there are a number of things we, we might want to do. And in relationship to health and illness, I mean, I can, I can see a number of things that we w- might want to do. We might want to open up data so it's not something which is owned by one company, but it's something which we all have, might, might have access to. We might want to reject an individualised model of health and illness. We want to might want to enable whole communities to interact and engage around issues of health and illness. We might want to challenge health policy. We might actually want to challenge some of the big health corporations, which, um, not so much in the UK, but in many parts of the world, are actually making money out of illness and out of disease. Of course, again, the the pharmaceutical industry is part of that. We might want to organise against, for example, environmental polluters, or I've recently been doing some work on obesity and come to the conclusion that We actually need to do something about the whole way in which food is farmed, retailed and marketed and we might wish to actually challenge the entire basis of especially fast and processed foods and how they they are now coming to dominate the market. And as a consequence of that, it means that with that kind of agenda, we can start to rethink the way that uh, even something you know as simple as a Fitbit might actually be used so my I've, I've suggested that we we might uh, aim for something called system health and I, I didn't invent that term uh, but it's a useful term to use to actually start to use some technologies in the interests of uh, the people and for communities, rather than for biomedical or corporate interests, we might want to reject an, enti- a, a, an individualized or medicalized approach to health. We might want to reject the monetization of health and illness, which is going on uh, through insurance schemes, through through the uh, marketing of always more expensive pharmaceuticals. And instead, what we might want to do is to build some networks. Of connected bodies that can actually start to challenge those things. And I mean, this is something which is not pie in the sky. We can actually do this with existing technologies. And I mean, one thing that we could do, for example, would be to start to use network digital technologies to enable health and risks to health to be assessed across a locality or within a community or within a social group. We could share data data from all kinds of different sources uh, using this technology. Um, We could use that also to disseminate any concerns that we had, any any concerns about risks from pollution, for example, and actually keep communities in touch uh, with what's going on. We could start to coordinate coalitions to engage, for example... If there's another supermarket coming to the high street which is going to provide lots of fizzy drinks and crisps and um, uh, fatty foods and, and high, end, high calorie foods to, to young children, then we might actually uh, uh, develop some kind of coalition to fight against that development. And we all, might also use it to start to formulate and implement policy. So all of those things can actually be done using very simple technologies which are digital technologies which we've got, you know, from from a Fitbit through the kinds of facilities which we've got through networked technologies and such. like. So actually, this is all very positive, and it feeds into a more activist agenda. It's not going to happen automatically, and I suppose that the the, the, the role of sociologists is to start to make those things happen, but is actually, it does feed into a, a, a broader dissatisfaction, I think, with the way that society is being organised at the moment. And we can actually start to use technology for the, 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 uh, for the objectives of the people rather than for commercial and other interests.
0: Fantastic. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and I, again, I um, thoroughly agree. And, um, I think that point about that it's um it this won't happen automatically um is absolutely vital and especially when the the kind of corporations um that you mentioned are they are actively trying to make remake this situation or make this situation in their own interests. And so that's uh, the importance of of people to be um, um countering that where necessary. Um I've taken up far too much of your time, so I'd just like to say Thank you for speaking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating. And um, look forward to your, your book, which is out very soon as well.
1: Thank you for this opportunity.
0: Great. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed that first podcast. I'd love to hear any thoughts or comments you have. Um, you can contact me on Twitter at Chris H. Till. And you'll be able to find all of these podcasts on my website, which is blog. And you can subscribe through iTunes and the usual memes. And I should have mentioned at the start, these will also be on SoundCloud as well. And so there'll be um, an episode coming out weekly for the next few weeks. There'll also be a blog post about this episode on my website and some links, references and further reading to stuff we talked about in the episode. Next time I'll be talking to Mina Ruckenstein who does work on consumption and health in relation to the digital. And finally, the theme music is by Rocco and it's bleeps galore. And the incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78. Both used on a Creative Commons license. And this episode was written, presented, produced and edited by me. See you next time.